You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on a very special Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is former United States Senator Dan Coates. He has held many positions, many in elective office and in the federal government. Most recently, he was director of national intelligence, and he's here today to talk about his career. But we're going to start with what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine. Dan, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Well, Robert, thank you for uh, asking me to be on. Um, Chance to talk to uh, Hoosiers as a been a big chance, uh, part of my life, and uh, the opportunity to do it now, even though I've stepped down from uh, public service, um, it's a privilege. Well, let me say a couple of things very quickly so I don't get yelled at by all my friends. First off, you asked me to call you Dan, so I'm doing so, or I would not. Of course, I could call you Staff Sergeant, since that's your rank in the United States Army. Um, And I should also say that working for Dan Coates, was the very first job I ever had in politics in 1992. I started off at the very top. You will find no more honest, humble, and true Hoosier public servant than Dan Coates. So thank you again for coming on. Well, that's nice words that you've said. Thank you. I just appreciate the opportunity. So one of your stops on your public service career is something that people don't may not know, and that is you were ambassador to Germany from the United States from 2001 to 2005. You were very interested in foreign relations and foreign affairs in your time in the United States Senate, along with your colleague, Senator Richard Luger. And as I mentioned, you served for a few years as director of national intelligence in the Trump administration. So let me give you some time and you can just assess from your perspective what's happening in the Ukraine right now. Well, it, it, we're all glued, at least I'm glued to the media that's uh, giving us what's happening right now. It's so fluid, it's hard to all, almost keep up with. It is astounding to me that um, the Ukrainians uh, have stood up like no one thought that they would. Uh, Their president, who was uh, a former entertainment, came from the entertainment circle and uh, uh, reminded you, Ronald Reagan came out of entertainment. Uh, This person, they said, well, you know, he's not going to be up to dealing with uh, Ukraine and being a president and so forth and so on. 
he's a he's a world hero right now for the way he has stood up for his country. Uh, the media attention that has been focused, uh, the condemnation of what the Russians have done and are doing, uh, nations that never wanted to test Russia or have any engagement with that that might affect their ec- economy or whatever, uh, are stepping up. Uh, the world is stepping up, seeing the real, the reality of Putin. Uh, he was a KGB head over in Eastern Germany before the wall came down, uh, head of the KGB, uh, uh, calculating, uh, power-hungry, uh, lying president leading the USSR. Uh, we see demonstrations in Russia against Putin. Uh, this could be potentially a game changer, but, and I say but because Russia has massed a massive army and military equipment uh, on all the borders trying to encircle Kiev and um, with the force that they have uh, against uh, a, a determined but far less capable force of the Ukraines. But what they've done so far has drawn attention to this and what's going to happen next, uh, boy, it's just hour to hour and what kind of response is Putin going to make, seeing that his military has been failing and not doing what he thought he'd do? He, he thought they would walk in there in 24 hours, they would have control of that government. And uh, I, I think this the silver lining to all of this, and I'll stop talking right after that, the silver lining of all of this is that it's a wake-up call to NATO, a wake-up call to democratic nations around the world, but particularly in Europe. Uh, that democracy is something you cannot take for granted. You have to be prepared. You have to be strong. You have to stay with it uh, because autocrats and others want to take you down. And so this is a real test here in terms of three three nations uh, against authoritarian ruled nations. And who's going to who's going to come out uh, on top? And there has been some lagging and some taking for granted that's been going across with NATO, spending the money they need to spend. But right now, I think everybody's saying, "Okay, uh, game on. Uh, We got to get our game together and we're going to unite and do it together and expose uh, what Russia is trying to do. You mentioned wake up call. Let's start with Germany. Just earlier, a few hours ago, actually, before the recording of this podcast, Uh, The chancellor, Olaf Scholz, announced that he's going to spend, Germany will spend more than 2% of its economic output on military spending. This has been written about in the news as a tremendously, uh, tremendous watershed event, not only for Germany, but for the NATO alliance. How do you see it? Well, you said it. Um, Germany was not standing up to what their responsibilities were, being the largest and best and most military capable country of of NATO. Uh, We've been pressing them for years and years and years to fulfill their, uh, what they said they would do and spending 2% of their GDP on on military, but they they never uh, got to that point. Uh, Interestingly enough, the conservative party, CDU, CSU under Angela Merkel, who was a great leader, but they did not really step up as they should, I think, thinking that, well, maybe um, keep some kind of relationship with Russia. We still like to sell Mercedes and uh, uh, tools and so forth to Russians, and and maybe that's the best way to go. Um, A lot of people were saying, including us, that uh, no, uh, Putin only responds to strength. He will only back down when you see that somebody else has the strength to stand up to him. This flip here on Germany is amazing because their new chancellor is, is part of the SPD, and that was the party in Germany closest to Russia. The former chancellor before Merkel uh, was hand in hand with Russia over the pipeline. He he took position 
uh, uh, chairing Gazprom, the, the ma- major gas company in Russia. Uh, he's been criticized for being so is selling Germany out uh, and so forth. So the new new chancellor now from that very same party closest to Russia has stood up and it's, it's about time, but good for them. That is a huge step forward. And I just learned about an hour ago that the Swiss, who never said they would let anybody else worry about whose money was going where, froze Russian money and froze oligarchs' money and all of that. And that's that's a first. And so this is going around the world here. And uh, it is amazing It's in terms of what we might see happen. Switzerland also closed its airspace, and you mentioned a few minutes ago about a wake-up call. There are some other kind of breaking news. This is being recorded on Monday, February 28th, and we hope to post it this evening so that everyone can hear what you have to say. We're talking to former United States Senator Dan Coates. Uh, er, Sweden announced it was sending 5,000 anti-tank missile systems to the Ukraine uh, Finland is sending weapons to the to the Ukraine. I mean, countries, Scandinavian countries who who for centuries, quite frankly, have been neutral in one way or the other. What does it tell you and what does your experience tell you when countries like this have decided to step in in some way that Putin has aired so badly that these countries have decided that you know what, we can't just stand aside like maybe we have in previous conflicts. Yes, I mean, this is, a, this is clearly something that we've for years wanted to happen, but has not happened when these Baltic nations and others uh, have basically said, yeah, we, you know, we want to be with you, but we're not going to join NATO or we're going to play neutral and, and everything will be OK. Um, this has been uh, a wake up call for them also. And they're responding to this uh, uh, sends a major, major message, I think, to the Russians and to the rest of the world that uh, we're in a change position and democracy is vulnerable and it's being attacked by those who don't support free enterprise and freedom of the press and freedom to live in a country without a strong man telling them what to do. And so... uh, this could potentially turn out to be a major game changer in terms of we've been just talking about the declining democracies. This could be the thing that makes them stand up and show the world that this is what a democracy looks like. And this is what an autocracy like Russia and others uh, are trying to undermine and submit to the to their people of different countries that it's better to go their way than our way. So it could be a major, major game changer. So much of what passes between Russia and other countries in Europe involves energy. And Russia has not shrunk at all from raising the specter of cutting off European access to their natural gas and other energy sources and I'm not exactly sure of the dates here, so I'm going to ask this very quickly. Were you involved in some of the discussions and, and advising European powers, especially in Germany, through your role as ambassador from the United States with regard to the Nord Stream 2 system that uh, the current German chancellor has seemed to have maybe perhaps backed away from a little bit? Yes, I was in, engaged uh, presenting the U.S. view to the Russians uh, with their people who were engaging in foreign policy, engaging in economic policy, trade policy. Uh, and you mentioned uh, the, the uh, uh, energy issues. Um, the I thought from the beginning, and we in the United States thought from be- the beginning, that uh, de- dealing with Russia is something that the Germans should not do. Uh, their chancellor sold them out on it, and Merkel did not correct it. Uh, not one of her things that she did many good things, but one thing that I didn't agree with. But 
I took our messages uh, to the Germans to basically say, look, it's not just Germany. It's the eastern countries where the pipelines from Russia go through. Russia can shut those down and uh, uh, if they want to. And we have to, you have to look at this issue in terms of not just what's good for Germany, but what's good for the entire EU. Those that have been released and freed when the wall came down uh, have moved toward Western democracy and who have joined NATO uh, are now perilously put in a place where Russia can shut off their their heat in the winter and their cooling in the summer and the essentials needed to, to uh, have energy. Now, that's a challenge for us uh, that we could have better met, in my opinion, that if uh, Congress uh, and President Biden would have issued the support for the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, it wasn't all that long ago, three, four years ago, when through drilling and, and all of the uh, new oil fields we had found in the Dakotas and, and Texas and so forth, uh, I still remember the day the headline came out, the U.S. now is free from any outside influence, we can energize uh, through our own processes all the gas and oil that we need to run our country. Uh, that didn't last very long because the shutdown, fulfilling the Keystone Pipeline completion, nothing's coming through there now. And basically, and there are some climate issues, but basically shutting down uh, the drilling that was taking place in the Dakotas. Uh, and we're, that puts us in a situation where um, we could have been in a much better position, particularly implying and uh, in, in, in helping Europe to get oil from other sources. Uh, so, um, once again, lessons learned, but uh, sometimes too late. President Biden's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, recently said that, quote, Germany is the best friend the U.S. has in the world, close quote. Do you agree with this? And and is what's happening over in Ukraine with Russia's invasion only strengthen this relationship? Well, it's always been a key issue, a key nation uh, of, the, of Europe, along with the United Kingdom, um, in terms of relationships and support. The Germans did hide behind uh they're not wanting to over-engage or do some of the things that we thought we needed them to do, uh, particularly in, in terms of Iraq, uh, particularly relative to what some of the things the Russians were doing and on this Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, but uh, this, this wake-up call for them has, I think, uh, turned the tide. Uh, that relationship has always been good on a business side and a foreign policy side, but there were some things that the Germans and and their counterparts, I mean, and their nations uh, around them uh, could have been doing, uh, but put economic uh, trade and so forth ahead of the need for a strong military and a strong standing up in terms of what was happening in Russia. We should say that the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline is built to transport natural gas into the European Union um, because of the massive reserves located in Russia. One of the stories, there are many stories of, of Ukrainian resilience from its president all the way down to just the grassroots. I read an article earlier today, and I think this will maybe give you a chuckle. Dan, and that is Ukrainian breweries have stopped making alcohol and are using their facilities to make Molotov cocktails. What does that tell you? You know, that <laughs> that tells me that the Ukrainians are what one really tough people who love their country and are going to do anything they can, including taking a former bottle of vodka and turning it into a Molotov cocktail so that they can stand by and throw that out against a Russian tank or group of Russians or whatever. I mean, it is, 
it is uh, like David and Goliath here um, in terms of what's happening in Ukraine. And no one four or five days ago thought that the Russians would be stymied at this particular point in time. And and hopefully uh, there can be some retreat. And my concern is, is that Putin is so, uh, well, he thinks in such a way that, you know, he can't afford to lose or be ridiculed or be condemned. But that is what is happening. He's seeing protests in his own country. And, uh, but he's a strong man with almost an obsession about the nations that have once been part of the USSR and now are free, free nations after the wall came down. And so if he wants to, uh, he's got just by force, um, the ability, I think, to take over Ukraine, but it would be a ruined rule. Just, you know, it would be devastated if he did that. And if he, he would sacrifice a lot of Russian lives, uh, their army isn't up to what they think it is. And we're seeing the holes and seeing the, the limitations that they have had and the problems that they've had. But by true mass of force and the number of troops they have, the number of uh, equipment they have and missiles and so forth, um, it's, it's awfully hard for a country like Ukraine to overcome. Um, but if there is enough pressure against what the consequences would be to Putin, Putin and to the Russia uh, Federation, um, perhaps that would re- cause him to walk off some some ramp here and try to uh, back off, claiming that uh, grab some land or I don't know whatever is going to happen there. I'm, I'm concerned that Putin might go go uh, ahead and just say. The heck with it all. We're going to blast through there. But um, um, he's got the world looking at him, and uh, we'll see what happens. Have you ever met uh, Vladimir Putin or uh, President Zelensky? And even if you haven't, what do you think is going through their minds right now? You just talked a little bit about Putin, so maybe uh, concentrate on Zelensky. But have you ever met either one of them and had a chance to take your measure of them? I've talked to a lot of Russian officials, but I've never had a direct talk with uh, Putin uh, and not met Zelensky. Um, I had I continued to be director of national intelligence uh, in these last two years, um, I would have been in Ukraine with him. Um, I've had interaction with intelligence services in Russia, um, basically meeting with them to say, "Look, um, we." have very few things in common. Uh, we understand that how you have tried to influence our elections. We know what you're doing. Uh, uh, and we know you're going to continue doing it. And we're going to co- continue to keep you, uh, counter you. But can I ask you of one thing? Will you do one thing? Both of us have one thing in common, and that is we don't want to harm our own people. And with the terrorism that is taking place around the world, and there's terrorism efforts going on in Russia, and there's terrorism efforts going on against the United States. Can't we at least inform each other if we hear of something that may happen? And, and let me give you, I was speaking now to the head of their intelligence agency, and both their military and, and civil. Uh, I said, let me give you an example. We learned that Russia at St. Petersburg is under, going to be under a terrorist attack that would take many, many lives. We passed that on to you, and you got that information an hour before that happened, and you were able to stifle it from happening. We would like you to reciprocate if you find any kind of intelligence that would harm Americans, and you know that, we would ask you to do what we did for you. We may have policy differences, we have all kinds of differences, but our intelligence communities could keep our people safe if we had agreed just basically to do that. Um, I did not 
get any handshake on that one. But mm. um, nevertheless, um, when I talking about Ukraine and, and Zelensky, um, this guy has turned into Europe's Ronald Reagan in terms of Russia. And with Reagan standing, with all that Reagan did through the 80s that brought down the wall, um, here's Zelensky standing there coming out of the entertainment business, basically saying, you know, I'm not going to accept your offer to bring me out of this mess. I stand here with my people. Uh, (laughs) That's the the quote of the year, isn't it? I don't need a ride. I need ammo, not a ride. I need ammo, not a ride. Uh, That's going to be a quote that's out there a long time. And the way he has stepped up to mobilize his people and the way just the next door neighbor uh, saying, um, putting down, you know, filling a bottle, filling a vodka bottle with with kerosene so they could Molotov cocktail against a tank or whatever, but to stand in the middle of the road. Uh, and, you know, these, this is incredible. I mean, these people are standing up for their country, even if they know they're going to die doing it. And it is, it is amazing. And I, I, I think it's probably amazing to the Russians because I'm sure Putin thought he would just roll through there and just like everywhere else, like in Georgia and everything else, Belarus, everything else he's done. Uh, he's done it without having to pull the trigger. My favorite seen so far captured on video is the ukrainian and i'm going to assume this is real i've seen it in three different places the ukrainian uh, tow truck operator who hooked his tow truck up to a russian tank and started to tow it away and you can see the russian tank operator running towards the tow truck of course you don't know what happened to either the truck or the operator this What is happening right now in 2022 is perhaps not even the worst thing that Russia, or in this case, uh, what I'm about to say, the Soviet Union has ever done to Ukraine. And of course, I'm referring to the great famine of the early 1930s when roughly four to five million Ukrainians were killed and millions and millions more suffered from birth defects due to starvation and the starvation of their parents. What is it about Russia? And you alluded to it a few minutes ago when talking about Vladimir Putin. What is it about Russia and its need to dominate not only independent countries of Western Europe, but also its former members of the Soviet Union? Yeah, you know, it, um, Russia looked at when it was USSR, controlling all those other countries, they were a major player. It was just US versus Russia, uh, global. Uh, but now, uh, you know, rising China, um, uh, the, the uh, rising states in, in, uh, in NATO, uh, in Europe, um, Russia, uh, a declining power, um, Putin, I think, uh, has seized, seized this. He is obsessed about it. Um, he wants to make it Mother Russia again. Uh, he's clawing away bit by bit by bit. Georgia, Crimea, uh, the uh, eastern eastern uh, banks of, of Ukraine, and it won't stop unless somebody stops it. And I think what's happened here is that my um, my hope. The result, ending result of this, bringing in Sweden, Finland, who didn't care before, uh, the Baltics, others, um, uh, the Swiss, uh, puts up a puts up our wall, our wall of you know we are not going to stand for this, and we're going to stand up for who we are. We're going to stand up for democracy. We're going to stand up for freedom, and and people are joining this all over the world. Um, exposing Russia. So um, this could be a historic change. You know, Russia has 11 time zones, so it shouldn't exactly inspire claustrophobia. But it seems to be (laughs) 
<laughs> it seems to be in just the makeup of of Putin that he can't he can't control himself. And, and I read a really good article just this afternoon in National Review, and I want to ask you about it. Two points that the author made, and then we're going to move on and talk about other aspects of your incredible career. Uh, the article said the author assert, uh, excuse me, asserted that America has two primary interests in the current situation. Number one is that no more players, no more countries enter the war as full belligerents. For example, Poland, that's who he mentioned. And second, Mm -hmm. that Vladimir Putin's regime suffer costs and penalties as a result of this invasion. Would you agree with this too, with these two? And do you have any others you would add? Well, that's a very good question. I, I, I agree with that. I do believe that um, I was listening to General Petraeus this morning when he said um, Russia's getting their tail beaten off here. What we don't want, but you know, the only and, and we all, we all are happy to see that happen. Um, but we need to remember Russia is a nuclear nation, and we don't want some crazy man, some crazy. Uh, head of Russia to basically push to the point where they where they think that they have nothing to gain and everything to lose if they don't push the button. Um, I don't think that will happen because it would it would totally Russia would be totally wiped out in response. But nevertheless, um, I do think this could be a turning point for Russia's place uh, as a bully. Uh, in Europe and trying to undermine nations all over the world, not more, not only in, in Europe, but even in the United States, trying to undermine democracy and saying our system is better. It's being exposed. It's not better. I'm not going to ask you to grade the Biden administration's performance on this because it's unfolding and we want to be judicious here on the Leaders and Legends podcast. but. As someone who's been in the White House, been in the Oval Office, been in the Situation Room, as international crises like this play out, what would you like to see the Biden administration do in the next 48 hours, in the next fortnight? Well, you know, they're a little behind the curve uh, in starting in terms of this. We could see this building up weeks ago in terms of in, if we had gotten more equipment, if we had taken more of a stand if we had gotten our NATO uh, people together uh, as, as united and, and Germany kind of stood in the way of that. Um, if they had pushed harder on that, I think that it would have been better. It could have prevented that or put the Ukrainians in a better position. Uh, nevertheless, I think the response that they have been made, that has been made now uh, relative to pushing for the SWIFT, the change, a change of money that Russians no longer can do, uh, I don't know. I don't know whether it was our influence on the Swiss that caused them to uh, freeze out the Russian uh, money stored there in, in Switzerland. Uh, that was a huge move. Uh, and the, the uh, I just said it could have happened earlier and perhaps prevented what we're seeing right now. But at least at this particular point in time, um, I think um, we are getting our allies all in and all together. Um, we need to unite as a free world. All the, all the free countries of the world need to unite on this one and really push for it. And uh, uh, I think this administration believes that. Uh, Biden has had some criticism for um, not being strong enough on this, uh, but we'll see how it plays out. But at least right now, um, everybody's awake. You know, I asked you about... Uh... President Zelensky and Vladimir Putin and what was going on in their minds. You've known Joe Biden for at least 40 years, if not a few more. What do you think's going through President Biden's mind as this unfolds? Well, uh, I'm sure he, I, I don't think he was prepared for something like this. Um, I, uh, you know, it, it just is interesting. Joe Biden and I are about the same age. Uh, he served in the in the Senate for a lot longer than I did, but I did serve with him, got to know him. 
I I believe he that he's he's been loaded up with a lot of stuff here, and I, I look at myself and think about you know what if I were president of the United States right now, it would be almost overwhelming. I don't have you know I I, I think I have still a lot of energy, but I don't have the energy to deal with a twenty four hour seven day a week crises all over the place and so forth and so on, just because of age, you know, you, you're just not as, <laughs> is not as strong as you are uh, when you're in your fifties and sixties. Uh, uh, and so I think Joe, it would have been much better for him to say, uh, yeah, I've always had the ambition to be the uh, president of the United States, but uh, you know, maybe it's time for me to slow down a little bit and, um, I think some Democrats are, and maybe more than some, are basically saying, well, yeah, uh, we won. We wanted to win the election, but I'm not so sure our, our current president is up to dealing uh, with all of these issues uh, in the way that we would like to have it that dealt with. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our very special guest is former United States Senator former director of national intelligence and former ambassador to Germany, Dan Coates. We've been talking about Russia and Ukraine and the situation there, which has captivated everybody. And I'm going to ask one more question about that. And then we're going to move on to your career because I want to ask you about the elephant in the room, perhaps. And that is the actions or non-actions or attitude of China not just towards Russia and the Ukrainian situation, but also its covetous gaze, which is always towards Taiwan. What do you think China's up to? I'm very concerned about this. Um, she, uh, president of China, has got to be sitting there watching all this. Um, they, they're not partners with Russia. They, they, they can play Russia, but they're so much stronger than Russia. Um, she has been obsessed with bringing Taiwan back into the mainland. They're Chinese. Um, he ought to be giving second thought the fact that here's a country like Ukraine that has just so far less capabilities uh than, than Russia and Taiwan, which has a lot of capabilities. Um, I sure wouldn't want to get in a situation like like the Russians have gotten into. On the other hand, um, Taiwan is sitting out there what 30 30, mi- 30 miles away from the border of China. Uh, China's on the rise and we're 7,000 miles away. Uh, I've been a strong supporter for Taiwan and our, our dealing with the Chinese uh, in that regard. But she's got to be weighing, hmm, is this the pathway to take over Taiwan? Or maybe there's a different way of doing it uh, and trying to work something out in terms of a two-state thing. But they did it with that with Hong Kong, and then they, they, they uh, pulled out uh, their promise uh, and now are are ruling that, and that's probably what would happen with Taiwan. I'm just am concerned that uh, stalwart supporter of ours like Taiwan, uh, manufacturing company, a lot of equipment that we use, and all of that, uh, and their freedom uh, is at jeopardy. Uh, but uh, what's happening in Ukraine may cause she to say, maybe that's not the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. Or to try to do it. I hope it does. I hope that's what he's thinking. Or I was thinking if if the Russians walked in there in one day, twenty four hours, took control of the government, um, you know, we might be able to do that with Taiwan. That didn't happen. Your career for pub- in public service stretches back um, to the. 1970s, when you were working for a fellow named Dan Quayle. 
what made you decide to enter into public service? And when Dan Quayle took on and ended up defeating Birch Bayh in 1980, uh, you ran and won Dan Quayle's congressional seat. So you started off in public service. And like a lot of people do, you eventually put your name on the ballot. What drove you to be in public service and what drove you to make the leap that, hey, I can I can I can be a congressman from Indiana. You know, Robert, I never had those thoughts. I never thought I would be engaged in politics. Um, I had just graduated from law school and uh, after leaving uh, Army service um, with the through uh, IU law on the GI Bill. Um, I was married and we had two children um, at that time, uh, graduated from IU law. Uh, we moved to Fort Wayne. I joined up with an insurance company handling some of their real estate and a number of other issues for them. And we thought, uh, okay, this is where we're going to be. This is the life we're going to have. It's nice. And here we like our city. We like our state. Um, I like the company I work for. And uh, that's that's our future. Well, along came, um, I, but I've always had an interest in following. Um, I was a political science major. I, I've always followed it. Even as a kid, I was picking up the paper, nine and 10 years old, 11 years old, reading about the Korea War, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, and so forth. I was always engaged in that. So it wasn't a road that I thought I would take uh, for job and marriage and kids and life, but it was something that always intrigued me. Uh, but I never, I, I never made a decision to say, I'm going to go for that. So um, very unusual circumstances came about. Uh, the CEO of the insurance firm I worked for uh, was Dan Quayle's finance uh, chairman. And he knew of my interest in all the things that were going on. Um, but he was, you know, we, both thought that you know I'd be with this with this firm and and this would be with me. Uh, he approached me and he said, you know, um, Dan Quayle called me. Uh, he was finance chairman, so they talked back and forth and so on. He said, uh, I'm looking for somebody who has these qualifications. Uh, you know, who's, I like to have a law degree, law degree, and and uh, solid Republican, conservative, and and so forth and so on. A lot of people are putting a lot of pressure on me to this person, that person, so forth and so on. Do you have anybody yet you would know that you would recommend that maybe, um, you know, would kind of take, take, take you know, take take it some a recess away uh, to help me get started and all that? It'd be my district uh, guy who, you know, and and uh, he came to me and he said, "Would you be interested in that?" And I said, "Well." Um, yeah, I guess I would. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I said, you know, it, it's a, it's a unique opportunity. And so, um, I talked to my wife about it and, and she said, I said, but you know, this is just, a, you know, more than two years. That's all. Uh, I mean, just to help him get started and so forth. And he asked me to, to do this, if I would do this. And she was suspicious about all of that, you know, well, what, what's, what after that, um, you go back to the other firm or, or what and um well there i was and a series of things have happened happened as you mentioned and you know dan quill uh, i served for him uh for nearly four years uh and when i i didn't keep on my promise to my wife that i'd only do it for one term uh but i got very engaged in that and then one day dan quill said i'm gonna run if Governor Bowen doesn't run. He hasn't made up his decision yet. I'm going to try to be the person that they would pick to fill that seat because Bowen didn't out. So it was, you know, a lot of people were pushing him to be uh, the run for the Senate. I picked up the newspaper, Journal Gazette, um, one morning at the porch, and the headline said, Beth Bowen has cancer. Governor withdraws from any run for the for the United States Senate. And I just said, oh my gosh, I mean, Dan Quayle is going to run for the Senate. Um, and um, he recommend, he said, you might want to try to run for my seat. And I said, whoa. 
So, you know, it's not something I had dreamed of. It's not something I had worked through to get to a position to be. It was a situation, um, you know, some events happened beyond, far beyond my control. Well, I'll be darned, all through my life, uh, I haven't had a thought of moving to here or moving to do that or whatever. It's, you know, the doors opened and the issue for me was, do you want to step through? Or do you want to not do it? Um, and I just could spend a lot of time. Uh, I had, I had, and I, well, my wife and I uh, um, are people of faith. I mean, uh, we we had we had prayed that uh, if God wanted us to do something, uh, and it, opportunities came, uh, uh, we would go forward if we believed that that was the right thing to do. And there's just the things happen throughout my career where uh, unexpectedly, uh, unexpectedly, I ran for Congress, unexpectedly, I ran for the Senate, unexpectedly, I uh, uh, never thought I'd some, be an ambassador. Unexpectedly, I didn't think I would run for the Senate again a second time. Unexpectedly, I didn't think I would be the director of national intelligence. Uh, it's been a whirlwind of uh, extraordinary uh, experience uh, and so grateful for the support I've had from Hoosiers all along the way. Uh, I can't think of a state in the union that's better than Indiana and has been better to me and with people who have supported me and surrounded me and helped me be, to be able to do all the things that I've done. I give great deal of credit to a lot of smart people that worked for me and helped me uh, through uh, difficult and good times. You followed Dan Quayle when he probably at the time, certainly the biggest statewide political upset in Indiana history when Dan Quayle defeated uh, three-time United States Senator Birch Bayh. Then eight yep. years later, you followed Dan Quayle again. He was selected by George H.W. Bush to be his running mate in 1988. The Bush-Quayle mm -hmm. ticket one was elected, which means that Dan Quayle's Senate seat is now open. He had been reelected in 1986, which I think at the time was the biggest margin in Indiana history. So Governor Orr has a Senate seat to appoint. Famously, and he talked about it when we interviewed him for the Leaders and Legends podcast, Mitch Daniels turned down this offer. Governor Orr then appointed you. So I have two quick questions. One is, what were you thinking when the offer was made? And is this was that a step that you wanted to take? That's A. And B, does former Vice President Quayle ever give you a hard time for just following him around everywhere? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, at one time, I so people said, uh, "Coach, you're in the tailwind of, of, of Dan Quayle, and uh, uh, you're just, you know, he creates openings and you sweep in." <laughs> uh, and so, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know how you counter that and say, "No, I, you know, I did this all myself." No, I didn't do it all myself. Like I said, <laughs> that door opened unexpectedly. Uh, and it was the same, same with the appointment. I'm governor Orr said, you know, uh, you got elected by one guy, one vote. <laughs> so everybody, else has to, everybody else has to work to get billions of votes to get in, in the, into the Senate. And it was, you got in there by one vote and I made it. <laughs> so, uh, and then, uh, the, uh, Ambassadorship uh, came out of the blue from George W. Bush, um, as it going to Germany is probably one of the most interesting and rewarding four years of life uh, that Marsh and I have ever had. Um, you know, we arrived there two days before my second day in office. Uh, there's ambassador hadn't even been sworn in yet. Uh, was 9/11, and that changed everything. Uh, in the world and changed my life, uh, changed the German's life. Uh, and going through that, all, all of that just 
took me out, basically out of standing around uh, and social things uh, as a diplomat uh, to just be totally full engaged representing the United States with the German military, the German intelligence, the German foreign policies. Uh, it was uh, and it was it was a stopping over point for all everything going into the Middle East, and so we had at the time the largest embassy uh, any of anywhere in the world, not anymore, but in terms of the number of people uh, in Germany, it was a, a staging place for all the all the troops going to the Middle East. Uh, we had seventy five thousand um, U.S. Army. Uh, people, uh, military people in Germany, uh, uh, all the air, ground, and er everything was happening there. So um, having served on the Armed Services Committee, uh, that was very helpful to me in working with the militaries, a lot of uh, our military um, uh, during, uh, during uh, the Iraq War. What was it like as someone who served two years in the United States Army uh, to be around not only that many soldiers, but that many military personnel as they were going off uh, to war. My son did, my son Joshua did two tours in Afghanistan as a combat infantryman. And, you know, you are mixed with both pride and, and trepidation and some fear. Yeah. Um, but you, with your military background, was it, was it kind of a, a shot of adrenaline, for lack of a better term, and a shot of kind of patriotic pride to be around that many men and women who volunteered, not drafted, volunteered to serve their country post 9-11? Yeah, you, you nailed it. Um, it. It was. It was one of the most important parts of my job and one of the ones I felt was most rewarding. It works with generals and colonels and, and private, uh, private guys all the way down uh, you know, in terms of, of what was happening at the time. And so, uh, yes, having served, uh, I felt like I was part of that also. And that's something unique to an ambassador unless uh, something like 9-11 comes up or, or a war breaks out. Uh, so basically a very, very uh, experienced uh Generals and, and leaders were sent to Germany. It was a stepping stone to to going all the way, uh, and uh, uh, I enjoyed every minute of that. You mentioned and was so so proud, you know. And I also had, fortunately, uh, well, I, I would go down to the uh, go down to the hospital at Landstuhl with those Marines and Army and other coming back with terrible wounds and walking through the hospital and, and the courage of those people. Um, I want to get, I want to get healed so I can go back and join my friends, join my guys in my team and get back. And it was just heartbreaking to see some of them, but it was so rewarding to see these young guys uh, who's, Courage, just you wouldn't believe, and how they how they were dealing with all these difficult things, heartbreaking, but nevertheless, um, yes, answer yes to your question. Okay, Dan, just real quick, I know we're getting. I want to be mindful of your time. We're at about fifty minutes. Well, I'm, have, I'm enjoying this a lot. You mentioned a few minutes ago talking about you weren't really sure that this was going to be your path, politics, elective office. You were appointed. What a lot of people don't don't know is that you were appointed in 88, but then you had to run again both in 1990 and 1992 statewide to keep your Senate seat. What were those campaigns like? And, and did you consider the, the arduous nature of the tasks ahead of you uh, when you accepted the Senate seat from Governor Orr? Well, you, you tapped into it. Uh, that was the toughest time. There was a five-year period of time. I had a... a Pretty good opponent going after me in my fifth uh, election uh, in the House of Representatives uh, in 1988, and then moving to the Senate uh, because of the way the law is structured in terms of replacing an empty seat. Uh, I had four straight years of campaigning while acting as a senator, 
Uh, and so it was, you know, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, and it was the hardest time of my life. Uh, uh, and the most demanding time of my life in those, those five years, uh, after that, I was flat out exhausted. Uh, I had just given it my all. I was trying to balance, you know, getting home for the little league game or the daughter's uh, recital or so forth and so on. And it was a lot of flying back and forth to Washington. Um, and I somehow wonder how I survived all that and came out whole. Um but uh, that was the toughest time for sure. And in 1988, you decided not to run for an additional term. Was that sort of accumulated wariness along with just the, the toughness of the job and the wanting to spend more time with your family? Because, you know, all of the political world was geared up for this titanic clash that was supposed to happen between you and uh, Governor Evan Bayh. Are you happy with your decision looking back that you're glad you stepped away and did other things? Well, there are two reasons uh, here. Uh, you named the first one. I was exhausted, number one. Uh, but secondly, if you go back uh, and look at the uh, previous campaigns, uh, my first campaign, I committed to uh, a restriction of how many, how many uh, times you could, you could run. Uh, and so I had committed to that. I wouldn't spend more than, than 12 years in the house, or if I went to the Senate, 12 years in the Senate. Um, and I had eaten up that time and I wanted to, I did, I wanted to honor that commitment that I made to the Indiana people it was interesting to me. Most people didn't care whether, um, weren't pushing me to step down because I made that commitment, but it was a combination of the two. I mean, I was flat worn out and I had missed a lot of little league games. I had missed a lot of art of things that I wanted to do with the kids and uh, they were still at home and that was the opportunity to do it. I wanted to ask you about three people and you can give as brief an answer, or you can make them one word answers if you'd like, but three people with whom you served okay. in the United States Congress and just get your impression of, of them based on your interaction and how they served your fellow Hoosiers. First name I want to mention is Lee Hamilton. Um, I've had great respect for Lee Hamilton, a Democrat who ran up the middle and doing the right thing uh, was much higher thing to reach for than politics. And Lee was straight up. Uh, I'm working with him today. Still, he just turned 90. Uh, we both have a position in the Luger Hamilton uh, school uh, at IU. Uh, and, but from the very beginning, I uh, realized um, he was, he was the right kind of, even always in the other party, the right kind of person in the party, willing to step across the line, work together. And he and Dick Luger, I think probably you'll say Dick Luger next, uh, <laughs> formed a really, really interesting. And, you know, who would have thought that two members of, of the Congress, one in the Senate, one in the, in the House, would hold the leadership of the foreign policy, dealing with our foreign policy, uh, a Republican and a Democrat from Indiana. Uh, everybody said, well, Indiana, yeah, that's a Midwest state. I mean, foreign policy. Uh, and two leaders like that who, who just dominated and were so creative and working together. Uh, that's a great tribute to the people of Indiana and to Lee Hamilton and, and Dick Luger. Richard Luger. Well, I think I just said it. Um, it was, uh, you know, he, he laid a path of, of, you know, how to, how to act in the Senate and how to deal with issues. And, uh, he, he was, he was solid in terms of, um, his, his lengthy experiences of, of governing, whether it was mayor, uh, or Senator, um, you know, he, um, he said 
he set a model for, for a lot of people in terms of how he dealt with people and his experience and knowledge of foreign affairs. So uh, that was pretty hard to fill the shoes when I was there. Uh, but uh, uh, we worked together and uh, it was a good combination. And what about Mitch Daniels? Let me say one thing about Mitch Daniels. You mentioned Mitch Daniels. I mean, this guy has is so creative. Uh, he was an amazing governor. He's amazing as a, pre, a president of Purdue University. He worked for Reagan, uh, one of the smartest guys I've ever known. I'm a big fan of his. And, uh, uh, well, I wish he had stayed in the presidential election. Uh, he would have made it an amazing president. Last but not least, probably my favorite storyteller of all time, Andy Jacobs Jr. <laughs> well, it's another Democrat that I had respect for. I was in law school when Andy was a congressman. Uh, he stopped uh, at one of, one of the uh, our classes and walked in, and, and the professor said, Oh, Andy, Congressman Jacobs. Uh, uh, he's just a, and that was my first uh, introduction to him. Uh, it, it sense of humor, uh, uh, someone everybody liked, uh, a very likable person. Um, uh, he'll be remembered as, as, uh, a good Congressman representing his state and uh, his district in the way it should be done. So, uh, yeah, I, I've always, I still believe, I still believe that building relationships with your colleagues, uh, trying to find what is best for your state, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, can we come up with things that we can both support that benefit our state, not that necessarily benefit our next election or whatever, but what we can do for our state. And then we'll let the people of the state decide whether they want us to go back again. And um, Andy falls in that category and of course, Dick Luger and Lee Hamilton fall on that. And I tried to do that um, when I was in the Congress and uh, we had some successes. So it's 2010. You're looking at yourself in the mirror, you're brushing your teeth and you're thinking to yourself, am I going to run for the Senate again? And you do. And you win. Well, that's, yeah, but that's not how it happened. Uh, I had no interest uh, or intent uh, to run for the Senate again. Uh, some other opportunities had opened their doors uh, for me, and I was looking at that um, very, very seriously. Uh, I won't go into the details of it, but um, uh, getting engaged in in um, heading up a university and and doing some other things. When I got a call from uh, Senator Cornyn, who headed up the Republican campaign there for the Senate and said, um, we're, we've been scouring Indiana to get someone to run against Evan Bayh. Uh, and everybody's turned us down. And I thought maybe we may have missed somebody. And he said, could you name anybody I should be talking to? And I named off about five names. I said, every one of them turned it down. And he said, we're, we're here. We don't even have a candidate. He said, there's this huge long pause unless you would be willing to do that. <laughs> and I said, Oh my gosh, I know. I mean, I, you know, I stepped down. I've had my time in the Senate. Uh, no, but I mean, you know, your name is no one. And, and, you know, we have to have some, somebody in there. And, um, and I said, well, let me check with my wife. I don't know if I can do that or not. And I said, Marcia, you, you know, you want to go back to Indiana? She said, I never wanted to leave because <laughs> uh, we moved with the kids to Washington because we needed to be, wanted to be a family together. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, people told me it was foolish uh, to even think about that. Um, but um, as it turned out, um, Evan did step down. I mean, it was a surprise that he, that he announced that he didn't want to run um i think about three months a month or two later after i had said yes and um 
I thought, well, he might have, he, maybe he reached that point where I was, uh, you know, back in 1998. And so, you know, I, I could understand why at some point you made it, you're worn out or whatever, and you just don't want to do it, do it again. But that opened the, that opened the door for, for me to serve that one term of six. And I went, I went after, I failed miserably uh, on the debt thing. I, I, I said, we were spending too much money. Uh, we're going into debt like crazy. We're going to, this is going to all land in the end on our kids and our grandkids and on our country. And we got to stop spending so much money and so forth. And we almost got a deal with Obama. He walked away with it the last minute um, to, to start that process. And now it's skyrocketed like crazy. And I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And you have been listening to Leaders and Legends, part one with former Indiana Senator Dan Coates. Part two will be posted. But let me thank, please, our sponsors, Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and Macalus Cheery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. All right, Robert. Obviously, I enjoyed it, or I wouldn't want to do it again. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.